invite you to turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Our last message from this wonderful little minor prophet. Micah chapter 7. You might remember from Exodus, the book of Exodus in chapter 34, Exodus 34. The people of Israel had sinned against God by making and worshiping the golden calf. These, this same people that God had redeemed out of Egypt had committed lewd and idolatrous and adulterous and debauched acts like the heathen nations right at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God was angry at Israel for their sin. He told Moses, God told Moses that he would not go up with Israel anymore. He told Moses, you go ahead and lead them. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going with you any longer. But Moses interceded for Israel and prayed that God would go with them, appealed to God's character and his covenants. And at the height of this exchange between Moses and Yahweh, Moses asked God, when God finally said he would go with them, Moses asked God, to show him his glory. He asked God to give him a token that he would still go with Israel. And so he said to God, show me your glory. Again, Moses was asking God for a visible manifestation. Show me visibly your glory was Moses' prayer. But God would do even better. He showed him his glory. God showed Moses his glory, not by revealing an immediate vision of himself to Moses, although Moses did see the hinder parts of God's glory. But God, when God showed Moses his glory, he did so by proclaiming His grace, His name to Moses. And so we read in Exodus 34, 6-8, The Lord Yahweh passed before Moses and said, proclaimed, The Lord Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then we read in the very next verse, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. How did God reveal his glory? By proclaiming his name and his grace. I invite you to look at Micah chapter 7 beginning in verse 18. Micah ends his prophecy with these beautiful words. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Let us pray. I ask you, Father, that you would show us your glory. That you would pass before us with your word so that we would see the majesty of your name revealed in your grace to sinners. Give us to not only see it, but to savor it, to love it. And I pray that your word would do your people good, strengthening their faith, strengthening their commitment to you, their trust in Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time brought this scripture into reality. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word for Jesus' sake, and in his name I pray. Amen. Micah begins in these three verses right at the beginning asking a great question. That's a rhetorical question. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you, he asks. This may be indeed a pun of sorts. Micah's very name means who is like Yahweh. Perhaps he's playing on his name. It's not the same word as Micah, but it's, it's similar enough that we wonder perhaps Micah is drawing from his own name here. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? The question, again, is a rhetorical question. And the words are not entirely new. On the east side of the Red Sea, after the people of Israel had crossed the Red Sea, after all was safe and at peace, the people of Israel lifted up their voices and sang to God with Moses as the choir director. And in Exodus 15.11, their song sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The people of Israel sang a song very much like Micah sings here. The question is rhetorical because the answer is no one. Hannah saying in 1 Samuel 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And when God cut his covenant with David the king, the king of Israel saying, There is none like you, and there is no God besides you. And after Micah, Jeremiah the prophet will sing, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. There is no one like God. There is no one like your God. There is no being like your God. He is, of course, greater than all the made-up gods of men's vain imaginations. God is greater than everything and all else. And in fact, that's the real point here. When Micah says, who is a God like you? His point is, you are most glorious. Micah is basking in the glory of God here. He's not actually thinking there are other gods that that Yahweh just happens to be better than. His point is, who can compare with you? Who is like you? Who is a God like you? There is no one like you. There is no God, no being, no false God of the nations. No human son of Adam. No creature, no animal, no created thing in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters that cover the earth. There is nothing like you. We could search 
under every rock and pebble and stone and plant and tree and every forest and every jungle in every place that exists. We could go not just to Mars, but to Neptune and to Venus and to Jupiter. Keep looking for something that could possibly compare with God and we would come up empty because there is no one like Him. Who is a God like you? There's none. The totality of creation, with all its beauty and power, taken together, cannot but whisper the glory of God. There is no other God, and He alone is most excellent. And that's Micah's point. There's no one and no thing like God. Truly our God is unique. And here, that means our God is most glorious over all. But Micah doesn't just ask the question, who is a God like you? We find out why he finds God so glorious in this text. He explains to us why there's no one like him. So what is it about God that brings delight to Micah? What does he find to be so glorious about his God? Not just for Micah, but Micah as he represents the believing remnant of Israel here. What is it about his God that is so great? That's what we're going to look at this morning. There are four things I want you to see that makes God so glorious according to Micah. We'll look at them this morning. First of all, the grace of God. The grace of God. What is it that makes God so glorious? The grace of God. Of course, we could camp on any one of His wonderful attributes. We could meditate on His holiness, on His power, on His wisdom. Micah's drawing our attention to His grace, first of all. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? Grace is unmerited favor. It is when God bestows us with something we don't deserve. And here the grace is seen in his pardon and forgiveness of sin. Micah says, God is one who pardons iniquity. To pardon is to lift away or to take something away. Here God is taking away iniquity. Our iniquities include all of our sinful words, all of our sinful thoughts, all our sinful actions that we have committed against God and our neighbor. Our iniquities are the things that make us guilty before God. The people who are here rejoicing in their God know that they are sinners. They know that they are guilty and they are owning that. There's no escaping that. There's no brushing it aside. Micah And the remnant in this passage are sinners. But what they rejoice in is that God pardons their sin. Not only does he pardon iniquities, but he passes over transgressions. To pass over here is to withhold judgment against men's sins. To pass over transgression is to not hold people to account. Now we can't truly understand the wonder of what Micah is describing here until we comprehend the gravity of our sin and what our sins deserve. And here the Bible pulls no punches. Galatians five nineteen through 21 say this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before, listen, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You follow the works of the flesh. You will not see the kingdom of God. Your sins will keep you out. And we know that the Lord Jesus will come and will judge all the earth. He will judge those who have sinned. The book of Revelation says that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20.14. Our sins, you see, are our greatest problem. They drive us from our maker and they bring upon us guilt and with the guilt, condemnation. We deserve God's wrath and punishment. We deserve eternal fire of hell. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that's why God's way of dealing with sins in this passage is so wonderful. He pardons iniquities. He passes over transgressions. Indeed, Micah continues at the end of verse 18. He does not retain his anger forever. The word for anger in the Hebrew is is actually the word nostrils because our nostrils get inflamed when we're angry. His his, His nostrils he will not keep forever. The living God does not get angry at sin or does get angry at sin, excuse me, but for those who know him, who believe on him, His anger does not stay anger, but changes to love and acceptance. He does not keep or hold or sustain that anger forever in perpetuity. Reminds me of Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And so... Here are people who know that they're sinners and yet are standing amazed at the grace of God. No one deserves the blessings listed here. A a God who pardons iniquities. A God who passes over transgressions. A God who does not keep his anger forever. No one deserves any of these things. We're the ones who have sinned. We're the ones who should have to pay for those sins with the rightful penalty for sin, which is death. In his little book in the Minor Prophets, the book that precedes this one, Jonah says that those who abandon Yahweh forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's a distinct mark of God's glory that he is a God who shows steadfast love and forgives sinners. Psalm 130, verse 8 one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 130. One, I <laughs> won't describe it. I don't have time this morning, but the last verse of the psalm says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Which All of this points to a question. How does God do this? We know that it's extended or applied to all who believe in him, who believe in Jesus Christ, his son. But on what basis does God pardon iniquity, pass over transgression, turn away from his anger to a place of love? Well, he shows grace like this through Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 3.25. It's actually very similar to our text here. Romans 3.25 says, God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith 
this was to show God's righteousness, righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, listen, he had passed over former sins. We look at a passage like this. We know Micah's writing before Jesus ever came to bear the price for sins upon the cross. On what basis does God act in this way? He acts on the future act of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because in his divine forbearance, he did pass over the sins of the remnant of people, of believers like Micah, who were trusting that God would provide salvation from sin and forgiveness down in his, in the future, down the road, at the right time. And what Paul is saying is, when Christ came and died on the cross, it showed God's righteousness to people like Micah and the remnant of believers in Israel. Because in God's divine forbearance, in Old Testament history, He had, in the words of Micah 7.18, passed over former sins. All, of that, all that Micah is describing here, points forward to the cross, according to Paul. It's fulfilled, it was fulfilled when Jesus shed His blood on the cross. Consider how God makes such pardon and forgiveness possible. God did not show His grace by merely excusing us and our sins. He doesn't just simply look the other way the way a police officer might if he caught you speeding. That's not the way God dealt with our sins. God, in order to apply this to us, gave His best and His dearest, His only beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And He handed Him over to sinners, the worst kind of sinners, who crucified Him. And that our Lord Jesus Christ died at the hands of the very people He came to save. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Him Christ who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And through Jesus' blood, God dealt decisively with sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why God is so glorious. Who is a God like this? who forgives us all, all unrighteousness, all our unrighteous acts are forgiven and pardoned and passed over because Jesus dealt with them when he died for us. Our crimson sins were made white as snow. They were erased better than I can erase a whiteboard. They're washed better than my wife can wash my white shirts. Cleansed, made clean. That's what God did with all of our sins. As the psalm says that we read this morning, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's the kind of God we're dealing with here. That's why Micah erupts in praise. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquities and passing over transgressions. And the beautiful thing about this passage is how Micah hopes in this. Down the road, we see it in history. We see it in the blood-stained cross. We see it as we gather together around the table on the first Sunday of every month. We can look back and say, yes, provision was made. Micah's still looking forward and he's saying, who's a God like this who will forgive our sins? Who will pardon our iniquities and receive us to be His people once again. And so consider who your God is. This is His character. That's Micah's point. This is the kind of God you deal with. This is the kind of God you pray to. This is the kind of God you worship here. 
And this is what he does to bring glory to himself. He shows us his glory in his grace, especially in the grace of forgiveness, and brings glory to himself in a most remarkable way. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, this is the Lord speaking, I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Listen, for my own sake. We think that forgiveness is all about us. It is in part to benefit us. But you know why God forgives you? So that he can show you just how great he is. How there is no one like him. I, uh, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 43, 25. And so I can take, you can take this home this afternoon in this way by giving glory to God for His grace. Just marveling at it. Just think about it. All your sins, the ones you committed today, this last week, all last month, the sins you'll commit this next week, the sins you don't even know you're going to do, all of them. And so think about this often. You know what makes your God glorious? He's a God who forgives and forgives, and forgives again, and pardons you, and passes over your sins, and doesn't stay angry forever. You know, one of the old liberal playing cards that they like to throw at us, one of the cards unbelievers like to throw at us, is to put this big divide between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Next time anybody ever tries to do that with you, take them and park up alongside Micah 7, 18 through 20 for a little bit and let them see the character of the God of the Old Testament and how he brings glory to himself through forgiving sins, ultimately provided through Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. But mark my words, this forgiveness is offered, but it's not always applied. It's applied to those who believe in Jesus Christ, who are made new by the Holy Spirit. And so I urge every one of you, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you must receive this God and his forgiveness that he offers. You must put your faith in him for him to forgive you. But when you do believe in him, when you bring your sins to Jesus Christ, All of them are forgiven. He forgives every single one. Newton, John Newton, put it this way. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. But finally, I'd encourage you to take this home and think about this passage this week and put it into practice this way. If you admire God for his forgiveness, which I trust you do, then see how important it is that you too forgive the sins around you. It is your glory to forgive, for it is Christ-like. If any being has ground not to forgive men their sins, it is God himself. The sin against his name and his glory that men have committed are far more important than ours. His glory is infinitely above ours. And we have sinned against him when he did us no wrong. So you have all the more reason to forgive the lesser sins that men commit against you. Be like this God. Isn't it wonderful? Don't you love how he forgives? Don't you admire this in him? Be that kind of forgiver. That's the first part I want you to see is the grace of God. The second reason God is so glorious, the delight of God. I won't spend as much time on this, but I had to say something about it. It, Micah says, at the very end of verse 18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So in the context... The end of verse 18 explains why God shows such grace to the remnant. Why does he abandon his anger and turn toward them in love? Because he delights in steadfast love. That is to say, because he delights in showing mercy to his people for the sake of his covenant promises. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But what I want you to see most clearly here is what God delights in. You know, here and there in Scripture, 
we get a glimpse of what brings delight to God. What makes him happy? What gives God joy? If you want a really good book to read on this subject, I, can, I, I think probably the best book that John Piper wrote is The Pleasures of God. And you would do a lot worse with your time than reading that book. That's a good book. It talks about what God delights in. And here we get a little picture right here of what makes God happy. What is it that makes God happy here? Showing steadfast love to his people. This tells us something very important about God. He loves. It makes him happy to come to sinful people and show them love. It makes him happy to keep his covenant promises with them even though they're sinners. God loves showing steadfast love because he loves magnifying his glory. Think about it this way. He delights in this. God is not a God who forgives reluctantly. He's not a God who grumbles a pardon or forgives with a heavy sigh. You know, sometimes when, um, sometimes when uh, people are in an argument, they may actually uh, recognize that they've done wrong and utter an apology. Or maybe another person is holding the other person hostage until they apologize. Like, I'm not going to get along with you until you apologize. Now, some of you who are married may even have this happen to you in your life. You're just waiting for the other person to apologize and try to make them apologize. And finally, the other person gets enough humility where they'll apologize. And, <laughs> and then for those who are particularly carnal and proud, it's kind of a grumbling, I forgive you. <laughs> My point with that little illustration is that it's not the way God is. God doesn't forgive like that. He delights in forgiving sinners. He's a God whose joy it is to show grace to weak, helpless, proud sinners who turn to him for grace in Christ. So if God delights so in showing steadfast love, shouldn't you it's easy for us to be angry, impatient, critical, even bitter with others. How much more glorious is it for God's people to look with love and welcoming acceptance of each other and to delight in that? Your brothers and sisters in Christ should be more certain of your love than of your disapproval. Delight in showing love like God does. That's the delight of God. It's what makes him happy. That's why he's glorious. Third reason he's glorious is the forgiving, the future forgiveness of God. Or you might say the forgiving restoration of God. The future forgiveness or forgiving restoration of God. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Verse 19 he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah here and the remnant with him, I think, are admiring God like a, like a groom admires his bride coming down the aisle. Every look at her is beauty, beautiful. He keeps looking and glancing and seeing beauty. She turns her head just a little bit this way. There is beauty. He sees her hair. There is beauty. He's admiring. The groom admires his bride. Every aspect of her. And in the same kind of way, Micah and the remnant are admiring their God from all these different angles and vantage points. Almost like a jeweler with a beautiful gem admires the gem from every side. Here, 
I think we're talking about, Micah's talking about a future forgiveness of God that was first hinted there in verse 18 where Micah identified the beneficiaries of God's forgiving character. Who is it that is pardoned and passed their sins passed over? It's the remnant of his inheritance. The remnant, as we've talked about throughout Micah, is all regenerate believing Jews whom Christ brings in to his kingdom in both testaments. They are God's inheritance. God's inheritance. That's the way he describes them in verse 18, for the remnant of his inheritance. This happens, this phrase, this kind of terminology, in God's inheritance, people of Israel being God's inheritance, appears at several different places in Scripture. Even a couple verses up from here in Chapter 7, verse 14, Micah prayed to Christ, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. An inheritance is something that belongs to someone by right because of the death of the inheritor. Here, this is the people. The inheritance of God is the people that God inherits as his own in his glorious kingdom. It is his prize. It's his delight. His people are his inheritance. The people get the promised land. They get the blessings. That's their inheritance. They get the kingdom. God's inheritance are the people that he redeems. And we believers are very similarly those whom God has chosen in Christ to be his own possession for all eternity. He chose us to make us his own forever. We belong to him, not just now, but into the glorious, unfading light of all eternal life. Micah has mentioned the remnant at several places in this book. They're the ones God gathers in chapter 2. In chapter 4, the remnant are the lame that Christ makes a strong nation and over whom Yahweh reigns from Mount Zion forever. In chapter 5, the remnant pour unstoppable blessings upon all the nations like the morning dew. And now here, at the climax of the book, we see that God forgives the remnant. This people that Christ will gather and bring into his kingdom are pardoned and forgiven of all their sins. And this had to be done. Unless God conquered Israel's sin, they had no hope of entering Christ's kingdom. So their sins must be taken away once and for all, or else they will not see eternal life. So the Father in compassion sent His Son, the Christ, to His people so that Christ could bring them into His kingdom through forgiveness of sins. And by their own sin of rejecting the King and Messiah, God provided everlasting righteousness and forgiveness of sins. For it was in their rejection of the King that Christ was crucified for sinners. What strange, wonderful grace is this? And God is saying, Micah is saying that God will forgive the remnant and bring them into the kingdom all of their sins forgiven. The, the, the future tense verbs in verse 19 show that the future is in view. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And Jeremiah 50 verse 20 has a very similar prophecy. In those days, Jeremiah says, and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for iniquity, for the iniquity of Israel. But there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. For I shall pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Remnant. They'll search for sins. No more sins. They'll search for iniquity. No more iniquity. They cannot be found because God will pardon the remnant of His people. And the whole remnant, the whole nation will enter Christ's kingdom with their sins completely forgiven. This is what He will do when Christ establishes His kingdom. The sins will be gone from Israel. And that's how they enter eternal life. Micah says he will again have compassion on us. God will return to a state of graciousness and forgiveness. Why again have compassion? Because 
is the exile is coming and God's purposes in the exile are severe. But Micah knows, exile notwithstanding, God will return to a place of compassion. He will not keep his anger forever. He will return to his compassion for the Jewish people. And even during this church age where God has hardened the great majority of Jewish people because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, even that anger will come to an end and God will save his people. Romans 11.26 promises all Israel will be saved. You see, God will not keep his anger forever. He will again have compassion on his people. And he adds two images here. The images in verse 19 come from God's victory at the Red Sea. And they powerfully illustrate God's forgiveness and what it's like for all people who believe in him, including us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will stomp on our sins. He will subdue them just as he did Pharaoh's mighty Egyptian army. He will conquer, God will conquer all our iniquities with his sovereign grace and his might. And he will cast all our sins, Micah says. I love this. He will cast all our sins, all of them, into the depths of the sea. Again, remember the Red Sea. Remember the Egyptian army. God threw the Egyptian army into the Red Sea. And they were defeated. Never to be seen again. So will God do with our sins. He will throw them into the sea. And there they will sink down, never to be found again. God will, in essence, Micah is saying, forget all our sins. And when his own son went to the cross, he defeated sin and its claims against us. So that sin no more can finger you. No more can sin condemn you. For sin has been condemned in the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a place where your sins are never mentioned again? Never brought up again to memory? Can you imagine a time where no one will ever bring up that sin again? Or even the sin that you know that you have committed that very few others or nobody else knows you have committed? Never again. Will you have to bear the memory of that sin raising its fist against you and condemning your conscience? You know, we're very good at remembering other people's sins. And we're very good at remembering our own. We have guilt. We know that we've sinned against God. But God, God deals with Israel's sins and our sins so that they're gone forever. He throws them into the deepest part of the ocean, into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. Men have no hope of ever seeing God until the guilt of sin is silenced. And this is the victory that Jesus Christ purchased on Calvary. There Jesus silenced Satan, our accuser, once and for all. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 talk about this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed, the passage goes on to say, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Satan, our great accuser, no longer has anything to condemn us. For Jesus has taken our sins and he has cast them into the depths of the sea. He took away all our sins when he became our substitute. And he met God's holy demands through his righteousness. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. These promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. The precious promises we read here were sealed by Jesus' own blood. And the blood of Jesus is what will give Israel an inheritance in Christ's kingdom. And it's that same blood of the Lamb of God that gives us an inheritance in that kingdom as well. If I can quote from Colossians again. Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And so we see that Micah not only rejoices in the fact that God is compassionate, by nature compassionate. One of his attributes is grace and the grace of compassion. But in truth, God will act upon that compassion and grace with real victorious forgiveness for his people. Now, I have but... A few moments, and this is not going to be a long point. I'm almost done. I bear your indulgence while I just finish from my, this wonderful little prophet by noting the faithfulness of God. The last reason God is glorious in this text is the faithfulness of God. He says in verse 20, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now to show faithfulness here, means that God will keep what he has promised. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And he will keep all his covenants, his permanent covenants with men. Jesus himself attested to this in Matthew 5.18 when he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God keeps all his promises. It's one of the reasons I believe there's a future for Israel. Because God keeps his promises. He's faithful. And the millennium is a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Micah is saying here. The Abrahamic covenant is still binding in God's sight. And the seed of Abraham will enter the kingdom. Not every child of Abraham will enter it. But God will in the day of the Lord save a great many of them who have faith, who have the faith of their father Abraham and they will enter the kingdom as regenerate saints and all of Israel will be saved and God will keep his promises. He will show steadfast faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. He will remember Old, old, old words he promised to Abraham. He will not forget them. He keeps his promises. And this is very important to us as well, of course. It's important that God keeps his promises. The prophet, or the, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He will show faithfulness to Jacob. We rely wholly upon the assurance that God will keep all his promises to us. This is why we confess Christ. Because we have the hope of eternal life. Which God who never lies promised before the world's, the ages began. And through Christ God has promised us many great things. The resurrection of our bodies. Eternal life an incorruptible inheritance in Christ's kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and eternal fellowship with the eternal God. And someday when we see our Savior face to face, we will say with Joshua of old, not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh has made to us had failed. All came to pass. And this too is a reason why God is glorious. He keeps his promises. 
And you need to know this. Yes, I know that you know it. I know that you believe it. But you need to be reminded of this. God never lies. You can trust his word. You can believe his promise. This is our hope. And if we need anything in this moment, it's real substantive hope. So isn't God glorious? He's a God who delights in his own glory. And he he has acted in history to show just how great he is, not just in holiness and power, but in grace. And even as he brought his covenant people out of Egypt and they turned on him, he showed his long-suffering grace, forgiveness, and covenant faithfulness and revealed revealed his glory to his people. And when we see his grace, we too marvel at his glory. And God wants us to see his glory in his grace. And when we see his grace, to give him glory. The people in this passage, these three verses, are not the grumbling, proud, unrepentant sinners that have appeared throughout this little book. They are not the sinners who in chapter 6 faulted God for not being clear enough with his demands. These are humble sinners who glory in their God. And these are the kinds of people to whom the God of the Bible shows his glory. These people know they have no salvation without God's mercy. And having found it in their God, they rejoice to know him and they seek to live in worship and obedience. So who is a God like your God? Do you see how great he is? Micah and the remnant are stunned at his glory and so they speak of it. And you should do the same. Are you going to keep this God all bottled up? Or are you going to be like Micah? Are you going to go around saying, who is a God like you? Let me tell you about him. He forgives sin. He pardons iniquity. All your guilt. So believer, behold your God. See him in his glory. See him in all his majesty of grace. There is no one like him. And this God Micah adores revealed this very grace and glory in the person of his only son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So worship him. Let us pray. O God, who is a God like you? We praise you, O God, that you have pardoned all of our iniquities and passed over all our transgressions through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no possible way that I could do justice to a passage like this. I am a feeble servant. And yet I pray, Lord, that through the ministry of the word this morning, your people have been fed and nourished by your Holy Spirit and by the word of God. And I pray that you would strengthen their hope and their their vision of your glory, that they would not just see it, but that they would worship you and be transformed into the image of your glory in Jesus Christ, to be like Christ, to be like you. Slow to anger, pardoning iniquity, keeping promises, forgiving sin, delighting in steadfast love. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That seeing the glory of Christ, we would be transformed into his image from glory to glory. So be at work in your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.